0: Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast where we talk about issues affecting the world's most important industry, food, fuel, fiber. We're talking about agriculture, we're talking about the business of agriculture. We will not do grain charts, you will not hear weather forecasts. If you want that, tune into your local AM as an outdated radio show where they talk about such things. No, here we talk about the business of agriculture, real live stuff that impacts you and me, the people of agriculture. I'm Damian Mason, your host. Got a wonderful program for you this time. I've got a pretty good guest. Uh, In fact, he he and I just, he kept me on the phone for 45 minutes before we're even taping this because he's got so much to say. I want to just let him burn up some of this. We're going to talk about regulation that's negatively affecting you. The people of agriculture happens in every state. Happens throughout the United States of America. We we could talk about POTUS. That's the I'm sorry, WOTUS, the Waters of the United States that EPA was pushing. We got all kinds of federal regulations, and then we've got certain states that are making it really hard on agriculture. Today we're talking about the business of agriculture. We're talking about regulation, regulation nation. We know that's what we've got. We're going to talk about what the future of agriculture looks like with more legislation and why you, every single man, woman, child in the business of agriculture owes it to yourself and to future generations to oppose regulation that's going to put you out of business. Have a unique take on this because my guest is a guy from California. You know, the people's colony, the socialist republic of California. We're going to talk to a guy named Eric Bream. I met Eric via social media. He's one of the administrators of my job depends on agriculture. If you do not follow that, they've got 76,000 likers and followers on facebook it's called my job depends on agriculture strongly recommend if you're an ag person and you are that's why you're listening to this podcast recommend that you check out my job depends on agriculture i post things on there regularly it does have a little bit of a california twist to it because that's where it was originated by people like eric wilson And Eric Breen, two of the 12 people that run My Job Depends on Agriculture. He and I met on social media. He's kept up with my stuff. I've done presentations 20 miles from his house. He didn't bother showing up. But he was busy because he's a citrus grower. He produces citrus and olives right there in Tulare County, California. He's my guest. He's on today. He's going to talk about important stuff. Welcome, Eric Breen. Thanks, Danny. Okay, and I'm going to apologize right now. He's in apparently the most remote part of Tulare County because they have terrible rural broadband. So occasionally there will be blips when he's coming in and out of audio. But again, Eric, say hello to everybody here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. Hello to the Business of Agriculture podcast. (laughs) all right eric i gave you a heck of an introduction i know you were listening and then i know that i heard your phone beeping in the background which i hope doesn't keep happening eric's a busy guy he's got several hundred acres of citrus and olives and then he also is actively involved and engaged oftentimes enraged with the state of california on the regulatory environment so Tell us a little bit about yourself, because these people don't know you. I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. I say you're a tree guy. You're a you're a citrus and an olive producer there in lovely eastern Tulare County. What else?
1: Um, Third-generation family farmer. Uh, we farmed cotton, wheat, stone fruit, but uh, back in the 80s, we transitioned into primarily citrus. We do a little bit of olives. Um. Before I came back into agriculture, I worked for the prison system out here in California for about 15 years, and my dad died very suddenly four years ago, and I decided that I wanted to keep the family ranch going. So I quit my job, and here I am four years later.
0: We're glad you are, everybody listening is glad you are, and very different sort of thing compared to me. You know, a dairy farm kid from uh, Northeastern Indiana, uh, that's my background. Farm 500 acres, milk 60 cows. Growing up, let's say, and and that was a pretty normal operation around here. But you're out there. You got trees. I think you told me before we went live that you've got some some trees in the ground that are 100 years old. That's a that's a quite a legacy. Uh,
1: yeah, it is actually. I uh, in 2018, they'll be 106 years old. Uh, that's a that's the original 10 acre block that my grandfather bought when they moved here from Southern California. And there's about 80% of the trees in there, so roughly 700-750 trees there There's are still the original trees planted in 1912. It's interesting, and those kind of trees are those? That's a Washington navel, and it's planted in some really good soil. Uh, it's part of the reason why they're still here. Um, and it's probably in that soil, that tree is probably, well, I know I'm biased, but it's probably the best eating navel orange on the planet.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. So these oranges you sell go for eating, they don't go for juicing or a little bit of both? Uh,
1: well, we do very little in juice. It's really what doesn't make grade goes, goes to juice. But really with the cost of production here in California, the, the juice prices wouldn't make sense. So it's really for fresh consumption.
0: These these mostly stay in the United States of America?
1: Uh, my target for a year on our stuff is to try and export about 35%. I think that's that's in line with the industry average. So they most of them stay here, but uh, the export markets are pretty important. That's really where you can uh, kind of capitalize on some of the the extra income
0: yeah yeah 35% of your oranges going overseas the rest of them stay domestic only the scraps go for juice the rest of them go for uh, fruit consumption uh, any other citrus or just oranges
1: um, no, we're actually we're planning some pomelos uh, next
0: year other than that we, we grow uh, Wait a minute! Probably. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Palos, Palos, like Ralph Lauren Paulo shirt. What are we talking about here? What's a polo? No. I'm, a, I'm a I'm a dairy farmer from Indiana. What's a polo?
1: <laughs> it's a pum It's a pumelo. It's It's a type of grapefruit that are It's very uh, popular in Asia.
0: So, so will they, they go to Asia or will they stay here?
1: There's really not much of a market for them here, so they, most of them would go to Asia. China mostly.
0: Fantastic. It's nice to know that we're giving them something that we produce versus us buying all of their crap. And I think my listeners agree. I will pause now while you all cheer and clap your hands. All right. Uh, Talking to Eric Bream, he's a citrus and olive farmer in Tulare County, California. The big topic today is going to be regulation, regulation nation, why we have issues in agriculture and why I think it's really bad that we're being over-regulated. Before we get to that, I want to just cover one last thing. He's not just a citrus guy. He's an educated business guy. Used to work in the prison system out there in California, came back to the family ranch, does all kinds of custom farming for other small citrus plot owners, but he also says he's in the olive business. Tell my people a little bit about olives because I don't know anything about olives.
1: Well, the olive thing it did fairly well this year, but historically it's been declining uh, because of returns. Uh, some of that has to do with the... Uh, a few countries in Europe that are subsidizing their growers there and kind of flooding the market here. And again, back to the cost of production here in California, uh, you got to make sure that you stay on top of things like that. So the olive market has been declining considerably in the last 20, 25 years.
0: uh, uh, Eric, olives come from uh, Spain. They come from Italy. They come from Greece. Is that where I'm thinking when they come from Europe?
1: Yeah, mostly uh, the big market is Spain.
0: Okay. And then is there any other state besides California that produces olives?
1: You know, I think there might be growing some in Texas, but I'm not positive about that.
0: How how much of your revenue is olive revenue percentage? Oh, less than five. Less than 5%. So you're mostly a citrus citrus guy? Yeah. Okay. All right. I promised our people that we had a good show. We're going to talk about stuff that is near and dear to them. And we're going to, of course, use your experience in California as a baseline. But every state has this going on in one capacity or another. I was shocked. I did a presentation in Iowa last year and I had to talk and I had to look this up a little bit about what's happening with water and then the argument that uh, people in Des Moines are making against agriculture saying that uh, agriculture has tainted their water, which of course you've got everything uh, wrapped up in one when you're in California. You've got water debates and you've got regulation debates. So just so the listeners know, Eric Bream, this farmer who also uh, is an administrator with My Job Depends on Agriculture, the web uh, Facebook page, he's been fighting a good fight for agriculture out there in California. So Answer this quick question. You live in farming, California. How the hell do you do that with so much regulation?
1: We follow the 12-step rule,
0: one day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> You've been actively engaged. You, you sent me your articles. Uh, one of your big ones is California Senate Bill 623. So, For those of you that are listening right now, I read all this stuff. The quick and the dirty is this. The legislative fix by the state of California was to enact or push through Senate Bill 623. Senate Bill 623 is all about taking care of nitrates. Nitrates are in the water, allegedly. Now, they brought in people like Eric, who's never had livestock, or at least not since the 1950s, and said, wait a minute, these nitrates came from me? So tell me about your involvement with uh, the opposition to this and what it means to you and and why it's going to be really bad.
1: Well, the legislation itself is really an answer to bad policy from the regulatory agency that's in charge of our water quality. So last year, around September last year, um, the Water Resources Board here in California sent out 27 confidential letters to uh, large landowners in Tulare County, basically saying, we believe that you are contaminating the groundwater with nitrates. And I wasn't invited to that table. I think you said I farm 700 acres. I don't, I'm I'm a little over 300 acres. And so the cutoff for that meeting was somewhere around 600 acres. So they brought in bigger growers into a room and said, we think you're doing this and we want you to uh, not really fix the problem. We want you to provide replacement drinking water for disadvantaged communities because, you know, again, we believe that you did this. And so I, I, I took issue with it because my neighbors were making a choice for me at that point, sitting at that table that I, that I had zero involvement in. And really it becomes a liability issue more than anything. The minute that they basically sign off and say, yeah, we agree that we did this and we're going to provide replacement drinking water for people. Then everybody has a liability issue that comes along with that that says, okay, well, now you are open to lawsuits from anyone around that has a nitric problem in their groundwater Yeah. Now, so they can sue you directly.
0: Yeah. Now, what, what I'm bothered by of reading what you prepared and the research I did was that – First off, uh, you are not not in the opinion of whoever uh, solicited this from the government. Uh, you aren't big enough to have a voice. So others were brought in of a certain size and you have no voice. And then if they say, well, here's going to be the fix, you're going to agree to buy a bunch of bottles of water for these people because they are disadvantaged and don't have safe water. And it's because of you, first off that assumes guilt. Secondly, it, it makes you, uh, De facto agreeing, even though you never did, you, didn't even, you weren't even aware of this or you're aware of it, you were involved. So this is really bad. And I think this is going to be a problem for ag in general, because now who has the voice and who is allowed to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's almost like the old thing of, uh, all right, kid, you want me to break your arm or take your wallet? Well, I don't want either. <laughs> I, I don't want either. But if I, you know, how do we come up with those two choices? It looks like your two choices were agree or else.
1: Yeah. And, and again, my issue with it was that I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't even presented with that choice, but the ramifications of someone else choosing could have been horrible for myself and and any growers like me because it, you know, just the specter of the lawsuit is enough to cost you, you know, more cash than you can make in a year. So it's an issue.
0: Yeah, a couple, a couple of things here, Eric. Now, Eric, of course, is a, a farmer. I'm talking to Eric Bream. He's a citrus guy. He's he's an active uh, participant in all these dialogues. But I'm not going to do anything that's going to put him in hot water. So, dear listeners, I want you just to consider this. One thing that I observe, and I've spoken all over the North America, and I've done all kinds of associations and trade groups, I'm worried that sometimes trade groups and associations do not really represent all of their members. They maybe represent... Some of their members. And I wonder if this is what's happening in California, because the reality is the people that should be doing the fighting on this are the California Farm Bureau or the California Citrus uh, Association, whatever the name of that is. And I wonder if maybe you're not getting the representation that you should or the whole industry of agriculture, because this this thing that really needs to be considered is we're in this all together. And when you've got, well, citrus says this, and cotton says that, and dairy says another thing, all of a sudden, you're feuding and passing the blame onto one another. And you know, it's the old thing about a house divided cannot stand. We don't have a chance in hell of winning anything legislatively based on our numbers. When only 1% of us farm and 7% of us peripherally, population-wise, 7% of us are involved peripherally in agriculture, 1% directly farming, we're out-legislated, we're out-voted. As it is, but if we start dividing amongst ourselves, we don't have a chance. Do you see that happening?
1: Well, that's, that's a tough, <laughs> that's a tough thing to talk about. But I I think the bigger issue is really the regulatory agencies like, like the, the state water board, because there is no oversight for them. They, if they make a, they, they're able to make a rule, enforce the rule, and then, if if you think that they're wrong, they get to be the jury and the executioner in that process. So it puts the trade associations in a in a bad place when uh, when they're trying to to advocate for anybody really, because there is no recourse. So it, it, they get presented with a choice of lesser of two evils, and. And historically, the last few years, they've taken that choice, and and I completely
0: understand why,
1: because you there's no other option.
0: Yeah, that's the, that's the thing that is frustrating is that you're talking about this that went on with the EPA. What was our recourse on a federal level with the EPA? They came up with this Waters of the United States. It was either that we got somebody that would defeat it and just put the thing to bed, or it was going to be, let's face it, a fairly advocate organization. You can go through and do all the research you want. The EPA had like an ungodly, I think they grew it up to like a $15 billion budget at one point. It's an amazingly huge budget. And again, it just becomes a bunch of people that are advocating for something. And then you look at how they worked alongside a cause group, Called Environmental Working Group. So you've got Environmental Working Group and EPA essentially moving in lockstep together. One is a radical fringe group, just just about there with Greenpeace or Humane Society of the United States, and then another one that our tax dollars are funding the EPA to put more onus, to put more regulation, to put more cost and compliance on agriculture. And that's what you've got going on in California. Closing thoughts on that before we hit to the next topic. Uh, nope. Okay. Next topic. While I brought up the federal level and was detrimental to ag, this is something that you and I see, and I think that we need to do a better job, and we will, you and I will, when we talk to the non-ag public. These folks that are clamoring for rules, they, 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 they clamor for rules, they want more regulation, there are people that absolutely believe the EPA needs more power. I disagree with that, and so do you, while they clamor for more rules and more regulations, especially once they see a, a proposition written in California or whatever state that says, do you think California's farmers should stop polluting our aquifers? (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Well then vote proposition seven. (laughs) The thing is while they vote for that proposition seven, they're adding a layer of compliance and complexity and regulation on you, a 300 acre operator that's going to probably put you out of business and you'll have no choice but to liquidate. And then those same people say, where have all the small farms gone? So our role as an industry, I think, should be, you want small farms to stop regulating us out of business. Your take, Eric.
1: Yeah, you know, you can see that dynamic here in California a lot more clear than you can in other places. Um, You know, because California is really, uh, you can divide it up into more than two, but I see it as, as really kind of two states. You. You have this uh concentration of wealth along the coast and you know that's where most of the policy comes from you know it's dictated by the, those those ideas that, that those people have and it affects us in the rural population and they don't have to bear the brunt or the cost of it and you know so that it's it's true what you're saying, and and I think here in California you can see it a, a lot more clear with this idea of the coastal elite um, that that really doesn't understand that some of these some of these regulations. You look at something like the cost of electricity. Well, you know where we grow food out here, it's a hundred and five during the summertime, and you know in San Francisco it might be seventy degrees, and so when it comes around to raising the cost of electricity they you know they don't need air conditioning so what difference does it make to them you know it's that kind of it's that line of thinking you know they they feel like they're doing something good and yet the people that it hurts they don't have to see them or bear the consequences of of the way they're thinking
0: no it it makes them they sleep well at night believing they just saved the world they changed things for the better and all they really did was put you out of business and, and cost you more money uh here's my role in in this whole thing. First off, I'm going to compare it to banking. I got a good friend that's a small town banker. Uh, Wells Fargo doesn't care if there's a bunch more new regulations with say the Dodd-Frank legislation act uh, because Dodd-Frank might add a couple million dollars of compliance and they have to hire a few new people there at Wells Fargo. Well, Wells Fargo can afford that. Whereas my friend that has five bank branches and one small bank in Northeastern Indiana, he can't afford $1 million of compliance. So the more regulation and the more cost you put out there through, you believe you are helping because it's the exact same thing Eric. The Dodd-Frank Act is going to protect people, is going to help people not get screwed by a bank. Well, who did the screwing on the banks? Was it my little friend, my little bank here in Huntington, Indiana, or was it, again, the great big banks? It was the great big banks. So it's, uh, it's the same thing where it's this idea that we're going to make things better with this regulation and legislation. And then all you really do is you put the uh, people that maybe are smaller and unable to afford the cost of regulation and compliance out of business. Another thought, and I want your thoughts on this. You said that thirty-five percent of your product goes to export. I believe that too much regulation can just absolutely makes us less competitive. You already talked about olives; we're not competitive with these other countries. It could be because those countries are subsidizing. It could also be our cost of regulation. Your thoughts?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Um, you know, one
1: of the, one of the things that comes from regulation. To be fair is when it comes to food production is that you know here in California we probably produce the safest food in the world and that's because of regulation the the problem is is that it's it has gone too far and you know it, so there come there comes a breaking point to where safe food versus cost and you know everybody wants safe food but we're able to we're able to capitalize on that in the export markets because there's other countries that don't trust their own food supply, so and, and are willing to pay a premium to to buy ours. So and you know when you look at this idea of, of overregulation or overreach when it when it gets out of hand, um, it really does lead to what you're talking the same thing you're talking about with banking. It, it leads to a consolidation and i'm not sure that most people understand how how much california brings to the united states as far as food production goes you know we grow over 430 crops here at a at a value of close to 50 billion dollars uh, and that's just that is just gross pharmacies. that doesn't count all of all of the, uh, the the value adds that come along with that and all of the jobs that are that are with that so as that consolidation continues what we'll see is is you know we live in a disadvantaged part of California and we've got a lot of poor rural communities around here and so when you when you have very large multinational conglomerate type companies that that come in and control the market it, it becomes it becomes an issue because now we're we're moving profits out of our local communities and into other places, which would just make the situation even worse.
0: Absolutely. And what you just pointed out there is, again, it's it's like the the banking issue, but also if we make ourselves less competitive through regulation and, and that's what's happening. And so the, the poor, the poor person that's out there working for you and a person like you, that's got 300 acres of trees. All of a sudden you're regulated and, and compliance to where are you just going to liquidate and then you liquidate. And now those acres are owned by uh, XYZ corporation, which is a holding company, uh, which got Chinese money, let's say. <laughs> and now those, those, all the things we talk about buying local, it just flies in the face of all that buy local support, local uh, eat local. Well, you know what, how, how are you eating local? You just regulated my farm out of my hands. So I agree with that. All right, I do believe we've lived in a- We live in an environment of environmentalism, but it's so much misguided that the average person that drives a Toyota Prius uh, believes that they are doing some great good by casting more regulation onto you. So that's the theme here. If you are listening to this show, this podcast, we are talking about the business of agriculture as we do every time on this podcast. And you know what? We bring different issues to you. I was glad to have Eric Breen. That's who my guest has been and will continue to be for the next couple of minutes. He's an ag guy, a farm guy. It's also a smart guy. That's why I'm going to have these last few questions with him. First off, we could bitch about government all day, and I oftentimes do. But Eric Brink, talk about the business of agriculture. A couple of your thoughts. What's what's the biggest hurdle we're going to have moving forward? Is it going to be regulation? Is there something else on ag's horizon that bothers you as a smart 47-year-old farmer?
1: Well, I, I mean, speaking from California, I think – I think regulation is gonna be our, our downfall if, if we don't get a handle on it. Um, but really, I, I think when you look at it at the consumer level, we have done a very poor job of, of being able to figure out what resonates with those consumers. Again, if you go back and you say, okay, you know, people want to buy local, they want to uh, you know be environmentally friendly, and we just haven't been able to get that message to the right People, you know, it's an uphill battle because there's a lot of misinformation out there by by special interests. But part of part of uh, what what we're trying to do with my job depends on ag is really, you know, bring that consumer into the coffee shop with the farmers and really just he, for them to be able to hear the struggles, the triumphs, what whatever it may be, because. The underlying idea is, is that the truth always prevails, and it's, uh, it's been an uphill battle. We've, been, <laughs> we've won some and lost some, but overall, I think in the long run, that's really what we're going to have to figure out is how to make people listen.
0: Hey, by the way, Eric, I want to point out you're an orange. You're an orange grove owner in California, and I try and tell people, and I you know talk to them around here in the uh, northeastern Indiana, and they say I just like the idea of eating local. I said, well, great. It's February. Why don't you go find a local orange? Because right now you've got a cold. And you're looking for some vitamin <laughs> C. Go find that local orange. <laughs> okay. Uh, biggest opportunities for American agriculture in the next couple of decades. You're my age. You got another 20, 30 years. You want to be out here still making it happen in the business of ag. What's the, where's the opportunity?
1: I, I think the opportunity is probably in developing countries as people become more affluent. Um, again, if you go back to this idea that, that there's, there's people in other countries that are willing to pay a premium for something that they know is safe. Uh, you know, it, I well I say I say this to people often is that you know, why would you buy a piece of produce from a place where you might have to get a shot before you go there and you wouldn't drink the water when you showed up? And you know, people in these other countries understand that they're taking a risk sometimes with, with some of the some of their local stuff and they're willing to pay a premium for something grown in the United States or in California. And I think really you know that is where we can find a niche and kind of get out of some of this commodity mindset and really kind of focus more on our own internal quality with with a smaller set of customers overseas and i i really think that's probably
0: where where the opportunity might lie at least for me I love the way you think. I say this in front of my live audiences that we've got to get away from commodity thinking. 50 years ago, yeah, we could just say we can produce the hell out of food and we're going to find a barge to put it on and ship it somewhere in in the world where they've got a little bit of money and not enough food. The world caught up in large part, maybe not as good as us. And that's why now we need to think in terms of quality versus quantity, value added, both here at home and afar. I say the exact same thing as you. I'm glad that you brought that point up. All right. One last thing for you. Share one lesson about running your agricultural business. You have learned. You're a sharp guy. You came back into the business when your father tragically died. You've been running the business now for your fourth year. Tell me what you've learned that four years that you could share with our listeners in any business in agriculture that they can glean some value from.
1: Well, it's actually a lesson I learned many years ago from my father. And it's that you'll never regret putting people first. Um, you know, that is one of the the core values that I have (laughs) written over my desk when I look at it in the morning, you know, if I have a decision to make, it really, that is what guides me is, is, is this the best for the people involved? And, and I think in the long run, you know, that's, it has served me well. And, you know, just as an example, I have two employees. And one of them's been with my family for 23 years, and the other one's been with my family for 39 years. And so, you know, it, it speaks volumes about, about what we're doing and keeping not just them, but anybody, whether it's the consumer or anybody else involved in the chain, the, putting the people first is probably the most important lesson that I've learned thus far.
0: That's fantastic information right there. 23 years for one employee, 39 for the other. Your father conveyed it to you. You're still operating it there at your family operation. Put people first. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been hearing from Eric Bream. He's a farmer in California, Tulare County. That is one of the top agricultural revenue-producing counties in the United States of America. He's an ag and social media guy. He can be found on my job, depends on agriculture. You can find him on Facebook, Twitter. You can follow me and then find him through me. I'm at, at Damien P. Mason. That's my Twitter handle, Damien Mason Professional Speakers. My Facebook page, I'm always on LinkedIn, at Damien Mason. Please find me. Also, please tune in again to The Business of Agriculture. That's this podcast. I'll have another great guest next time. and I think I'm going to bring back Eric Green for another visit. Several months from now, when he finally gets better rural broadband. You've been listening to the business of agriculture. Thanks, Mr. Eric Green, for joining us. You'll come back again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, Damien. All right. Thank you. See you
1: guys. Come back next time. Thank you.